Rodney Hobson, financial journalist and creator of the detective Paul Amos novels, is my guest on the show this week. We talk about how he got into writing books on finance topics, branched out into crime fiction, and has most recently been helping people avoid scams. Welcome to episode 176 of the Marketing and Finance Podcast. This is the podcast for ideas and inspiration on marketing your business and growing your business and for discussing topics on all things finance. I'm Roger Edwards, a marketing guy and keynote speaker from Edinburgh. Talk to me if you want to cut the BS and the complexity from your marketing strategy. Hey folks, welcome to the Marketing Finance Podcast. Thank you, thank you as always for downloading or streaming the show. You know, I really do appreciate you taking the time to plug me and my guests into your earphones. Let's get straight into this week's interview with Rodney Hobson. We chat about why Rodney specialised in writing about financial topics, the parts of financial services that interest him most, why Rodney believes simplicity is important, Rodney's other career as a crime fiction novelist, why he decided to write a book about dealing with scams, and the biggest financial scam people face today. So let's get straight into that interview with Rodney right here on the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Rodney, welcome to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Hello there. Rodney, where are we talking to each other from today? I'm in Edinburgh as always. I live in Blackheath in southeast London, but for anybody who's not heard of it, we're right next door to Greenwich, which I think most people have because of the time factor. Greenwich Mean Time, of course. Indeed, yes. Rodney, you are an author, broadcaster, financial writer, journalist. You've published several books on investment topics. Intriguingly, you're also the author of a series of murder mysteries featuring Inspector Paul Amos, and I'd really like to have a chat with you about how you got into that. But before we dive into some of those subjects, maybe give the readers, the readers, maybe give the listeners of the Marketing and Finance podcast a little bit of background about yourself, where you came from, how your career developed, where you're going, and basically what makes Rodney Hobson tick. I'm glad you said readers, because when I do broadcast, I'm always tempted to say readers, because most of my life was in print journalism. I started out the traditional way into journalism on my local paper near Manchester, got into Fleet Street, spent uh, some time abroad, seven years abroad in Hong Kong and Singapore, came back to the Times and also did a stint on the desk of the Daily Mail. And then I've edited Shares Magazine and I've edited two financial websites. Uh, despite my advancing uh, years, I've always told people I'm at the cutting edge of the 21st century because I edited CityWire and what was then called Hemscot. So that has been my general idea. I've always been a journalist, more recently a financial journalist, and then got into writing the books and I give talks. I'm in fact later this month going on a cruise to give lectures on money. So. If it's interesting, if I enjoy it, I do it. And was there anything that um, made you specialise in financial um, writing or did you just happen to fall into it? Or was it just the fact that it was the most interesting subject? I've always been very interested in finance, although I nearly went into sports journalism. Right. Uh, I was actually recruited onto the Sheffield Morning Telegraph to become a sports journalist 
and I was asked to do a short stint on uh, home subs because they were a bit short-handed. And I, being young, I didn't realise it's the temporary jobs in journalism that last, it's the permanent ones that are temporary. Mm-hmm. And so the sports editor went out and he recruited John Motson. <laughs> I don't blame John Motson got my job. <laughs> But instead, the opportunity came up to get into financial journalism. And in fact, that was while I was abroad. I worked in a magazine called the Far Eastern Economic Review, very good magazine. I was deputy business editor there. Then I was business editor on a new newspaper in Singapore and then got back onto the business desk at the Times. So the opportunity was there. The thing is, if you're a generalist, you can't do a specialized job if one comes up. But if you're a specialist, you can always do a general job. So it's always worth specialising at some point. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Are there any particular parts of financial services that interest you most? I mean, obviously, financial services covers quite a wide spectrum, banking, um, investments, pensions, life insurance, protection, that sort of thing. Is there an area that you've been particularly interested in over the years? Yes, my main area is stock market investing, mm-hmm. and in particular, investing on the London stock market for beginners and less experienced investors. And I went into that because when I was on the news desk at the Times and subsequently on the city desk at the Daily Mail, I used to get phone calls from people who'd got shares in privatizations or in building societies turning into banks. It was all the rage then. So everybody thought, oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to be wealthy, grab the shares and all that, get them free in many cases. The trouble is, once they got them, they would no idea what they'd got. They would no idea what a share was. Mm. They got communications from companies without any idea of what the communications meant. They threw the communications in the bin and missed vital votes or vital actions they had to take. And I thought someone ought to write a book and start addressing the issue of what do ordinary people want and can we bring ordinary people into stock market investing? And I sort of made that my mission in life. And the result was your first book, which is called Shares Made Simple. And effectively, that is um, an, an easy layman's guide to investing in the stock market. This is very much into that. In fact, funny enough, one of the comments on uh, Amazon I noted was that someone had given it one star rating (laughs) and said this is a very simple book it's only suitable for beginners and thought didn't you read the title (laughs) the stock market guide for beginners so I thought I've succeeded that's what he thinks I've succeeded that's so what was the, the idea of doing that book first that's fabulous isn't it when you know that getting a one star review is actually the equivalent of getting a five star review <laughs> I, I mean I, I'm I'm pretty obsessed with simplicity myself um, I've made a, a bit of a career out of trying to simplify the marketing of the of the the companies that I've worked for and I've worked for quite a few financial services companies and more recently over the last five years I've been an independent consultant but we are surrounded on all sides and it doesn't matter which industry you work in it could be financial services it could be motor cars but you get bombarded with complexity and you get bombarded with jargon and the average man on the street 
has very little knowledge about all of this jargon and all of this complexity and they really do appreciate it when somebody like yourself comes along and puts it into simple layman's terms that they can understand. Now obviously if you live and breathe financial service and you live and breathe investments your book might appear incredibly simple and they may think oh I'm going to give him a one star review but I think the vast majority of people out there who don't have a clue about financial services absolutely welcome the simple language and the simplicity of the sort of thing that you're putting across. Yes, I think that's right. Because one of the things, one of the great problems that experts in any field have is getting right down to the basics. You'll find that, for example, an expert in computer technology will never tell you how to switch the computer on. No. Over these things. This actually happened to me because when I was uh, CityWire early on, I took the computer home to put some stuff up over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And the computer expert taught me through everything. And I took copious notes. Everything was fine. Except when I got home, I couldn't switch the computer on. It was a complicated mechanism. You had to pull a catch and press a button at the same time. <laughs> and this, is, this is what we don't want. I once, when I was working at the Daily Mail, there was a button on the computer that was marked help. If you press the help button, it says, press the button you want help with. If I knew which button I wanted to press, I wouldn't be pressing help. (laughs) That was why I thought we must get this right down to the beginning. And so if we're talking about share buying, we've got to say, first of all, what are shares and build it up from there. And so this was my whole idea, was experts don't tell you the very simple, the basic things, and that's what's needed. Absolutely. And my three rules for talking to customers in any industry are, number one, assume they know absolutely nothing. And that fits exactly with what you've said. Assume they don't know how to turn the computer on. Secondly, speak in their language. Don't speak in your own corporate tongue and third don't use garbage and management speak and mumbo jumbo and jargon and i think the shares made simple book really fits all three of those criteria yes jargon drives me absolutely crackers as well and people seem to think this more they say the more they're actually saying which isn't often the case (laughs) in fact i wrote a book subsequently uh how to understand company news because I took apart the jargon and explained to people what it was people were saying, and very often what company directors were hiding behind the management speak. Because if they're talking in stuff you don't understand, they're almost almost certainly hiding something nasty they don't want you to talk about. <laughs> I think that's, that's interesting. And I suppose as a journalist as well, you become quite... Uh, you start to notice the way press releases are are, are worded, and there's quite a lot of that goes on in press releases as well, isn't there? The language is is, um, written in a certain way, and you can almost become um, attuned to spotting what they're trying to hide. Yes, indeed. You get often the same sort of words suddenly come into fashion, and we start... The word challenging came in, challenging circumstances, which tends to suggest that the company directors aren't in control of the business if it's so challenging. So yes, you get these words that come round. They're often meaningless. And if they do have a meaning, they're trying to take you away from what's really going on. So after Shares Made Simple, you you almost did a bit of a pivot, didn't you? Because 
that was a, a non-fiction book about how to invest into the stock market, explaining it simply. But you've moved into publishing a series of murder mysteries featuring Inspector Paul Amos. What precipitated that um, shift, Rodney? Well, I've always been interested in detective stories. I've read all the Sherlock Holmes one. I've read a lot of Agatha Christie, which is a completely different kind of detective story, but I do find them fascinating in the way they're all constructed. But I have to say, my original intention was to write one book and one book only. Mm-hmm. Shares Simple was really from the heart. I felt there was a need for the book. This had to be, and I then managed to sell it, the idea to... Harriman House, the publishers, the biggest publishers of purely financial books. And that was going to be it. And they approached me and they said, we'd like a second book. You write about smaller companies. So I did a second one and I thought, well, it's best to have three books because one might cross-sell the others. So I then offered a third one. And lo and behold, before I'd finished, I'd actually got six books written. But then I got approached by a company called Endeavour Press, uh, which no longer exists, it's had a change, it's had a split in between the owners, uh, but Endeavour Press approached me and said, would you write a finance book for us? And I said, well, no, I've got a finance publisher, but uh, how about a detective story? And they said, well, try one on us. And I had, as it happened, got halfway through one, so I finished it off and submitted it, and they took it. So I then started writing more, because once you start doing one, you start getting ideas. It's amazing. For the detective stories, whenever I'm writing one, before I've finished, I've already got the next one framing in my mind. It's funny how ideas crop up. And also, the more you write the detective stories, the more people you know start making suggestions to you of ideas. And while the ideas are not always possible to use as they offer them, uh, you can sometimes turn them around and twist them. Detective stories are about twisting around. So I twist around what people say to me and turn it into something else. And it's absolutely fascinating. I do enjoy writing both genres. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've recently seen a, a bit a string of Ad, Agatha Christie films, just a complete coincidence from what you've said there. Um, on a flight back from Amman recently, I watched um, the latest adaptation of Crooked House, which I quite enjoyed. I've not actually read the book of that, so I actually found the mystery quite interesting. I also recently watched the remake of Murder on the Orient Express, which again I thought was quite a good film. But of course, I've seen the earlier film and I've read the book, so I knew who did it. So it sort of takes a bit away from it, even though it's a remake and it was very good. The fact that I knew who the uh, perpetrator was or the perpetrators in that case, um, it, it, it sort of put a bit of a dampener on it. What, what sort of genre is um, Paul Amos? Is it a, a typical lots of different characters, lots of interviews, and then the sort of denouement at the end? Is that the way that it works? It is, yes. It's very much a whodunit. Uh-huh. Whodunit have gone rather out of fashion recently. I suppose the real peak period for them was the 1930s. They never go away entirely, but crime now has much moved much more into thrillers and psychological thrillers and very dark stories, the Scandinoir. I see the bridges coming back. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of thing. Cold and bleak sort of stories. And... I didn't want to do that. It's Mine's not so much about the dark and the psychological. I wanted mine to be 
a, a sort of ordinary policeman, someone who went about things, because most murders are about ordinary people. They're not about big shots and so forth. So I wanted it to be very much a whodunit, the traditional style. You are given all the clues all the way through. There's none of this, the murderer suddenly appears from with knowledge and no chance of having earlier on. Suddenly appears out of the blue and you couldn't really have thought about how the story was going to develop or who actually did the murders. I think it is very important that you play fair. You've got to present all the facts and play fair. Certainly there got to be a lot of red herrings, but a good whodunit, you should be able to work out, either work out who did it, or if you didn't work it out, think, ah, yes, I see now. Yes, that's right, that adds up. That's the only solution that really adds up. I don't know whether I've achieved that or not, but that is the aim, and that is what I hope I've done. Again, it's a very interesting genre. Um, a TV series which I do follow, which is called Murder in Paradise, um, again is that sort of typical whodunit um, format. So there's a murder at the start of the episode. You get the police interviewing the different characters all the way through, and then they almost gather them together in a location at the end and reveal who the murderer is. And pretty much every episode for, I think, six or seven series now is pretty much the same format. And yet year on year, this series gets more and more viewers. And it's quite interesting. I've been following the viewing figures just for my own personal interest. And I think that sometimes the more... The more series a TV series gets through, they start to lose viewers because it does become a bit of a stale format. But this one, even though it's absolutely the same format year in, year out, is actually gaining viewers. So I think whether it's on TV or whether it's in print, that genre definitely works. And and maybe it is that trying to solve the clues, trying to spot the red herrings, trying to see if you can work it out before the reveal. I think there's something quite addictive about it. I absolutely agree with that, and I indeed also watched Death in Paradise, though I have to say I thought the first series was the best. It's very much like Jonathan Creek in a way, Mm -hmm. that you have these stories where nobody could possibly have committed the murder, and then suddenly they work out how it really did happen. Yes. Yes, it's very much that way. The idea of gathering everybody together for the final denouement is very equipado. Yes. He always got the people together. I don't do that um, because I feel that has been done before. So, but now I've been done before twice. So I don't have him get together like that because although every writer is influenced by some people gone before, I have to say, for my money, Ruth Rendell is the best of the detective writers mm-hmm. because. Her characters are good. She's got a great stories, and the characters are good. I think the Christie is very poor in characters. Yeah. I try to do, yeah. I, sorry. I try to do characters, and I but I try to do it my own way, and try to do it so that I, my books are different. Yeah, I do find that quite a lot of the crime fiction that I read myself. The policeman involved always seems to be an incredibly flawed character. He's either an alcoholic or a womanizer or there's something, some dark secret in in his or her background. You don't actually get any just straight-laced policeman. There's there's always a backstory, isn't there? Well, there there is. Now, that is something that I try to do different because I felt that Morse was very much the heavy-drinking womanizer that you're talking about. 
but also flawed character. I'm trying to get away from that and make Paul Amos fairly ordinary, but a, a real human being. Mm. I really feel that there are so many characters where they're brilliant at their job, but somehow they can't run their home life. It's been done so often before. I'm rather inclined to get away from it. There seem to be too many drunken cops around. Scott and Bailey is another example of it, where one of the characters there is always getting drunk. I think, well, that's been done. Can I do something different? And of course, I live in Edinburgh, so Ian Rankin and Inspector oh, yes. uh, uh, Rebus, I've, uh, I've effectively, I buy their books as they come out annually. And of course, Rebus is another alcoholic, etc., with a with a fairly um, complicated backstory. So there's definitely a theme, isn't there? There is, yes. Ian Rankin, I think, is very good. I agree. I think the naming of the dead of his is a brilliant book. So you've got this fascinating series of murder mysteries. How many have you written now? I've written five, and I'm three quarters of the way through number six, and I'm hoping to get that finished very soon. And do you think any of these will end up on TV? Well, one can live in hope. Um, I certainly would give me an enormous boost if they did. No sign of it yet. But what I'm hoping for is the idea of setting it in Lincolnshire. At least that's, as far as I know, no one else has done that before. I mean, Oxfordshire seems to be full of these sort of things, uh, Moss in particular. Oxford has been done to death, if you've got the expression. <laughs> but I'm hoping Lincolnshire might. It's just that it's so far away from London that it might be difficult getting the television cameras out there. But still, we've had a series, uh, Wycliffe, set in Cornwall, mm-hmm. which is a long way away from East London. So uh, if we can get cameras out there, surely we can get them out to Lincolnshire. And have you got an actor in mind who might play Paul Amos? I did when I first started writing it, have one in mind, but alas, he has since died, oh. so that's come by the board. <laughs> uh, I, in many ways, I hope, I hope we can find someone who's fairly unknown and will, this will be his big chance and he'll really go for it. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Let's keep our fingers crossed. So moving on from, from Paul Amos and the Murder Mysteries, your latest book is back to non-fiction, the book of scams. Now, again, this sounds intriguing. How to spot fraudsters and avoid being their next victim. Now, again, every day my inbox is um, full of emails because as a marketing person, I do tend to subscribe to people's emails. And and obviously at the moment, I'm inundated with people sending me um, new terms and conditions. And please check, click this box to prove that we're compliant with GDPR. But every day as well, within those, in, within those emails, there'll be click on this link and you'll become a millionaire or I, I'm I'm the prince in Nigeria and all you need to do is sign this piece of paper and I'll send you a check for a million pounds. So what, what, what prompted you to start writing a book about scams, Rodney? Again, I felt there was a need for it. Mm. As you say, these things are in the papers every week and people seem to be still falling for the same scams that have had so much publicity. And I thought, well, Someone ought to write a book about this and try to bring it all together. And what I was aiming for was to try to explain how scams work. Mm. And so they, they often come back in a slightly different form. The letter from Nigeria, you mentioned, the letter from Lagos, as I call it, where I've got uh, 
five billion dollars, which I want to transfer into your bank account. This, this was first tried in a different form in 1832. <laughs> and people are still falling for it. And you wonder why. So I thought someone really ought to try to classify these scams, explain how each type of scam works, so that people can watch out for it. But alas, I'm afraid it falls on deaf ears. As I say, people are still falling for these scams, and I don't know how you stop them. But there are some things that are so simple that you can save yourself from doing. If you're unsure whether to click on the box in the email, you don't click on it. If you've got the tiniest doubt about it, don't do it. You might miss out on something, but almost certainly you've saved yourself from something far bigger and far worse. And of course, sometimes the emails actually look like they're legitimately part of a company. I mean, quite a lot of them appear to be from well-known banks like NatWest or, or um, um, HBoss. And even the logos look the same. And sometimes the only thing that gives it away is if you actually look at the email address, instead of being so-and-so at NatWest, it'll be so-and-so at NatWest.Lagos or something like that. Just, Just... Little things like that give it away. I, I do find this another fascinating area because I follow social media quite a lot. So I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and Facebook in particular, people will believe things that get posted there almost without almost without question. And there are certain little, not not actual scams that can lose you money, but even just urban myths that get perpetuated. There's a, there's a famous one that comes around every so often where people are told that. In the next month, so in the next month, June, there's going to be five Fridays. And the only time that five Fridays appears in a month only happens in every 300 years. And people start sharing this and say, hey, do you realize that in in the next month, it's the first time in 300 years have been five Fridays in a month? And everybody's saying, oh, that's amazing. But all you need to do is Google it to find out that it actually happens a couple of times every year. But people seem to get sucked into these urban myths, and, well, they, and they, yes, they do. And there seems to be a tendency. There seems to be a desire to believe it. Hmm. And I suppose this is one of the reasons why people fall for scams. There's a great desire to believe you've won a free cruise, that you've won a million pounds, that you've won something wonderful. And in fact, I had a friend uh, who came round, and she suddenly got a phone call on her mobile phone from her sister who got this assurance that she'd come up on the Euro lottery. Right. I said, said, for God's sake, tell your sister to be careful, this may be a scam. When did she last buy a ticket? She hadn't bought a ticket in months, but she still thought she'd got a winning ticket. And you think, well, surely common sense tells you, if you haven't bought a ticket, you haven't won. But this is just great propensity. We want to believe what we want to believe, and we, we all do. We all want to believe things. And people, I'm afraid, have to learn how to be very doubtful and how to be very suspicious. And it comes, it's not a nice thing to say to people, you must treat all strangers with greatest suspicion. But I'm afraid you do. But it is one of those funny things. Very often, if you bumped into a stranger in the street and they said something to you, you'd take no notice. But if they phone you up and address you as if you're a long-lost friend and you have a clue who this stranger is, you, you take their word as gospel. It is rather rather peculiar how this happens because it's, it's something 
someone comes to you personally, they th- you tend to think you tend to take it personally and think that they've got some personal interest in you. What would you say was the biggest scam happening at the moment, which you've included within the narrative of the book? Biggest, probably, I think, are the emails that you get that say, click this link. I mean, each one may be fairly small, but it adds up that there's so many of them around. And you mentioned a moment ago about the websites looking authentic. This is one of the big changes that has happened. When you first got this kind of scam, they were full of bad English and spelling errors and so forth, not very badly made up. They now look, as you say, very authentic. And one of the things you can look for, certainly if it's got spelling errors beyond your guard, and certainly if it's come from a peculiar email address, you should be alert. I'm amazed how often I get messages from Hotmail telling me to click on this link to verify my account. And Hotmail seem to be sending out messages with a Google email address. <laughs> this can't be right, surely. So this does alert you, but the danger is now it's getting so sophisticated, it may look completely authentic. And you, it's, it's, it's a scam. What you should always do is, should the, is make a note of the content, write down the content of it, particularly if there's any reference code or anything, shut the email down and go on to the site of the company concerned and try typing in the reference or seeing what it is. You get into it that way rather than going back from the email. The other thing that is less common, uh, but is a bigger amount of money and affecting a lot of people, is this idea of getting hold of uh, emails, solicitors' uh, emails, and particularly conveyancing solicitors, and then you get this message saying transfer the uh, deposit into this different account from the one that you thought it was going to go into. And it was the scammer has uh, hacked into the solicitor's email and is sending you this message and getting the money diverted. That is growing and that is much bigger money. Mm-hmm. Rodney, this has been a fascinating conversation today. I just love all the different areas that we've discussed today. The non-fiction books you've written, Shares Made Simple, and the most recent one, The Book of Scams, something that everybody should read. Whether you think you know it or not, I think that everybody needs to read how sophisticated scammers have become these days. And, of course, the fascinating sideline of the Inspector Paul Amos murder mysteries. I'm going to um, go onto um, Amazon and see if I can pick up the first one of those after this conversation as this is the marketing and finance podcast rodney i always like to ask my guests is there a marketing campaign or is it it could be a product or something that's caught your attention recently that's made you really sit up and think yes i like that i might want to buy that there's a marketing campaign that's made me sit up and think i don't want to buy that (laughs) that's fine can i mention that because i think it's an important warning we seem to be getting a lot of adverts on the television put out by a certain sports broadcaster who really doesn't need the money, that's trying to morally blackmail people into taking out financial plans in their old age so that they don't leave a burden for their uh, their children or grandchildren or loved ones. And it really is very heavily into moral blackmail. And a lot of these plans are not a good value at all. You're going to put far more in than you take out. And in fact, it's very easy just to start putting money in 
full throttle of the rules and then lose everything you put in. So they're a very bad idea. Don't fall for this moral blackmail. And is there a business book that you've read recently, Rod? I appreciate you're an author yourself, but obviously you read other stuff. So is there a book that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Well, I'll recommend another one that's published by Harriman House, the same publisher as me, and that's The Naked Trader. It's for slightly more sophisticated investors than the one I aim at, but if you've read my books and want to move on, I'd recommend that, The Naked Trader. Fantastic. And Rodney, I'm hoping that people listening to the podcast might want to get in touch with you. So what's the best way that they could connect with you? Is it your website? Might be Twitter, email? You can certainly get me at Twitter. I'm at Rodney Hobson, so that's pretty straightforward. Or you can email me. It's Rod Hobson, all one word, rodhobson at hotmail.com. Very happy to hear from people. And if people want um, advice, if they're not sure... Well, I can't give personal investment advice, but if they want some guidance or want some knowledge, then please do get in touch. I'll help you in any way I can. Great stuff. And I will include links to those contact details in the show notes for the podcast, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F. Rodney, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fascinating to talk to you this afternoon. And let me wish you every success for the future for your nonfiction books and, of course, for the next instalment of the Paul Amos Murder Mysteries. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Marketing and Finance Podcast. Do please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-A-F for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a review. I'll catch you on the next episode. In the meantime, keep marketing your business to keep growing your business.